As was noted earlier in the announcements, what a joyful opportunity it is to come together today to see smiling faces of those appreciative of the faith of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and ever aware of the duty that's ours to strive to live pleasingly unto Him that we might inherit one grand day, that, that eternal life in heaven. We are blessed with visitors, and just as we thank the presence for each of them, also a regular membership, and to appreciate that we come to the ninth installment in a series of lessons dealing with the overview of the New Testament. We began this series of lessons with the concept, the objective, if you will, of striving to appreciate the major thoughts and ideas of each of the 27 books of the New Testament and to instill within our minds and to etch in that place a better working knowledge of the teachings and ideas in those books. We have looked at 26 of the New Testament books now, Matthew through Jude, and as we looked at each of them, they have prepared us, quite frankly, for the grand finale, the book of Revelation, the 27th book of the New Testament, the 66th book in the Bible. By way of a brief matter of introduction, we have attempted to remind ourselves of the need to properly divide the word of truth and to instill those teachings by way of application into our life. Today, as we look into the Revelation, this book has troubled so many throughout the years, and perhaps you and I have stumbled at times with regard to it. Last year, in the year 2007, we looked in some length at, in fact, this book and had a series of lessons lasting some 26 weeks upon it. This morning, in a matter of only a few moments, let's overview the entirety of the book of Revelation. That overview will, in fact, consist of some of the highlights of each chapter with an appreciation for, nonetheless, the single teaching that's the heart and core of all of it. As we begin that, might we turn to chapter number 1, and remind ourselves of, in fact, three principal ideas even in the opening verse. It could be that an appreciation of the teaching of verse 1 of this book is the single most critical idea for properly appreciating the entirety of all of its 22 chapters. First of all, in verse number 1 of the opening chapter, we learn that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That being said, he in fact gave it to an angel which in fact conferred it upon John who in fact wrote it for those churches in Asia and by inspiration it's good for you and I as well today too. Also from that verse, it is signified. That word in the Greek means it is given by way of signs and symbols. The book of Revelation is not a narrative in the same way that we would read Acts or in the same way we would read, say, one of the gospel accounts. The truth is given in signs and symbols. The word is apocalyptic literature. We must appreciate that fact. In this book, we see dragons and bowls and vials and plagues, beasts that rise out of the land and the sea. It is symbols and signs, and truth is given to us in that vivid and graphic way. Also, we learn from that opening verse, these are things which must shortly come to pass. John didn't write this to begin in its revelation 2,000 years later. Those who use revelation to say that it hadn't yet been fulfilled and it won't be until the time when the Lord's about ready to, to, to return have missed the entirety of this book. It was written to benefit, first of all, those who originally received it. It had a message within it for them, things that must shortly come to pass. That being noted, the fulfillment began very quickly about the time after John wrote it, 
But that didn't mean that the fulfillment would end at that point. It would stretch for centuries into the future. Ultimately, we shall find much of what's described will relate interestingly to matters that you and I even face in our day and time today. Notice also in chapter number 1, verse 3 provides a blessing. The first of the Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. That beatitude and that blessing has to do with those that read, those that hear, and those that keep the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, it's still important for us today to incorporate into our life the power and truth of this last book in the Bible. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, Jesus is lifted to a high plateau. We are told in verse 5 that He washed us from our sins in His blood. Sins are only forgiven through His blood. John thus lifts Jesus high and furthermore notes in verse 6 and verse 7, He has made us to be a kingdom of priests. How blessed indeed we are to serve beneath the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. He is indeed the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 1 or Hebrews 2 verse number 10. In verse 7, we furthermore are reminded again in this opening chapter, that there's coming a time when He will return and every eye shall see Him, even those that pierced Him. Perhaps that brings, ought to bring a shuddering thought to those that are not ready. Every eye will see Him. It'll be a momentous event. As the rest of this chapter unfolds the grandeur and splendor of Christ and the way He deals with His churches, these are some of the highlights. Verse 11, John wrote to seven churches in Asia. These we shall see more clearly in a moment as Ephesus, as Smyrna, as Pergamos, as Thyatira, as Sardis, as Philadelphia, as Laodicea. And as the book of Revelation through John was given by way of that means to them, we next learn that Jesus walks in the midst of His churches. Revelation 1.15. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus himself made this statement, Behold, I am alive and was dead, and am now alive forevermore. You see, our Savior was put to death on the cross, but now he is alive forevermore. And thus question, if you and I are called upon to be persecuted even to the point of death, may we never forget that he died for us. If it calls upon my life and yours to die for the truth, that should be what we have the faith to do. Revelation 2, we have seven brief letters given to these seven churches and in quickness they read with some of the highlights as follows. To that church at Ephesus, John commended them or the Lord commended them because they had, had identified some false apostles. But he, however, made this rather sad remark. You've left your first love. Revelation 1, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Revelation 2, verses 3 and 4. With that idea, he urged them to repent and return to their first love. And might we remember today, if ever you and I become cold in a heart that's hardened, not aware of the earnest and, ze and zealous character with which we first obeyed the gospel, may we in haste revisit that initial love that we had and the fervor that was ours. To that church in Smyrna, Jesus said, You will be tried very difficultly for ten days. He didn't really rebuke them for any great matter. He simply told them, you are about to be persecuted severely. But here was the message. Be faithful until death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. 
Even Smyrna, if you must die for my cause, don't forget that I died for yours. And if you must die for me, don't ever lose sight of the fact that there's a great land waiting for you. There's a beautiful home beyond. To that church in Pergamos, they were certainly in a very difficult position because he said that's where Satan's seed is. Satan had a stronghold in Pergamos. And not only that, there was great immorality rampant in the congregation there. Jesus rebuked them severely and urged them to repent and return to faithfulness. May we also note that immorality is not tolerated by our Lord. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and following. In fact, to that next congregation, Thyatira, to that congregation, they tolerated false teaching. There was someone like Jezebel, active, operative, and alive in that congregation, and the Lord said, you tolerate her and that which she teaches. Oh, it will not be a pretty sight on the day of judgment to have been guilty of tolerating false teaching. May we be zealous and earnest to identify and at once deal with it. That church at Sardis, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1, in many ways it sounded good. They had a name that they lived, but the sentence wasn't finished, for the Lord said, but are dead. They wore the name Christian, but as far as the fire of Christianity being alive within them, it was long since gone. It was dead. And thus, the Lord quickly admonished them, I still have a few in Sardis that have not defiled their garments. But he said, I will blot their name out of the book of life if they don't turn back to me. It's an important thing to appreciate thus the power and majesty and might of having an ardent zeal for the Lord and to not have a name we live but simply really are dead. To that church in Philadelphia, a congregation that many might feel sorry for, but we ought never feel sorry for Philadelphia. Because you see, of the seven, it was the greatest praised one that Jesus had. It was a small congregation in a place in the Roman Empire that no one liked to live there. But yet Jesus said, though you're small, you have done what you could with what you have. And for that, I'll open a door of blessing before you. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe we ought not feel so sorry for small country congregations, for when they do what they can with what they have, they are as pleasing to God as any larger metropolitan congregation. Finally, we come to the seventh congregation, Laodicea. To the church at Laodicea, Jesus had his sternest rebuke. This was a congregation who thought that they had everything. They thought they were rich and mighty and noble and spiritual and powerful, and yet the Lord said, You are poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. You have nothing. That perhaps is the saddest of all. They thought they had everything when in reality they didn't have the Lord, and for that reason they had nothing. Jesus urged them in the following way, I wish you were either cold or hot, but you're lukewarm, and for that reason you make me sick, and I'll spew you out of my mouth. No wonder in verses 19 to 21 he said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. They were urged to repent. And not only that, Brother Jason read verses 20 and 21 of that chapter a moment earlier. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open, I'll come in, sup with him, and he with me. And not only that, I'll grant that he may come over to be with me and my Father in his throne. And there we encountered the key word in the whole book, overcome. 
if we overcome this world and the sinful nature of Satan and all that he brings before us, if we overcome that, we shall have the right to come over and live with God forevermore in heaven. That is the key for the book of Revelation, to come over and enjoy the victory. As we turn to chapter 4, we now see that this particular chapter and those that follow highlight the issue that was set before us in Revelation 1.19, things that must be hereafter. These matters to these seven churches were direct problems, and they were to repent on the spot. But beginning in verse chapter 4, much of the description fits upon things that will begin to pass in the generations that followed. Let's notice in verses 1 and following. John sees a door open in heaven. As he sees that door open, he sees God sitting powerfully on the throne, and there's a rainbow over the throne of God. Immediately, three tremendous lessons. First, God is still in control. Though the Roman Empire was the ruling power at the time and Christians were powerfully persecuted, they were losing their lives day by day, they needed to know God still rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. As God was still powerfully reigning upon the throne, notice a door was open. Christians had access. God is accessible. May you and I never think that God doesn't hear us. May we never think that He is unconcerned about the plight of our lives. Heaven is accessible to the faithful Christian. For are we not told in 1 Peter 3 verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. God listens to you and me. And maybe it's been well said, but bears repeating. I'd rather have God listening to me than every king, potentate, and leader in the world bowing at my feet to hear what I had to say. God listens to the faithful Christian. Not only is there that door open that John sees, in the right hand of God is a book. And it's sealed seven times, and the writing upon it is on the inside and outside of the book. And as the, around that throne there are 24 elders and four living creatures. And the four living creatures, in verse 8, cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. As that book is in the right hand of God, John begins to weep because there's, of course, a great interest to have that book opened and revealed. But no one on heaven or earth is worthy to loose the seals. John begins to cry because it seems as though the curtain's going to close on the book of Revelation before it even gets started. However, one of the elders says, Weep not, John, for the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and is worthy to open the seals. That lion, L-I-O-N, of the tribe of Judah reminds us of Hebrews 7, 14. Our Lord sprang out of Judah. And in the next verse, that one that's described previously as a lion is now a lamb in the midst of the 24 elders. That lamb, of course, is the very statement that John made, John the baptizer. In John 1, 29, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Christ. He is the only one worthy of opening the book and loosing its seals. Notice in verse 12 of Revelation 5, the worthiness of Jesus is exalted. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. If you and I could devote a lifetime to praising the Savior, that wouldn't be enough. That's how great Jesus is. He begins to loose the seals in chapter 6. Quickly in the first eight verses, four of the seals are loosed. 
And as they are loose, John sees horses. The first one is white, and the second one is red, and the third one is black, and the fourth one is pale. And as these horses represent various aspects of primarily the Roman Empire, the first one was the conquering nature of Rome. Second one was the bloodshed that Rome brought about in her conquerors. Third one was the famine that came over the land as a result of the difficulty of that empire and what came about by virtue of her strict rules. Fourthly, death was often the result of the things that Rome brought. But as those things came and went, we're reminded of the interesting features of the fourth one was death and the powerful aspect of the sadness of it. As we come to the fifth seal, however, the fifth seal is a very significant thing in the book of Revelation. For when the Lord loosed the fifth seal, he saw saints that had lost their lives for the cause of the Savior underneath the altar. And they cried out, Lord, how long till it be will till thou avenges the cause for which we died? Those martyrs in the Roman Empire who gave their lives to Jesus and had to give their lives in faithfulness. They cried, how long until this cause for which we died is vindicated? The Lord answers in verses 11 and 12, it'll be a little while longer. As that chapter closes, we notice the sixth seal is loosed and opened, and we see a picture in a scene of judgment. God will pour out His wrath and His judgment upon not only the Roman Empire, but anyone who stands opposed to His cause. In fact, in verses 18... In fact, in verses 16 and 17 of that chapter, we have this refrain that there are going to be those that will call upon the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them to hide them from the vengeance and wrath of the God of heaven. And so it is that that chapter closes with a question. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? When the debris is cleared, all the matters concerning the day of judgment have passed, who will be left standing? It won't be the disobedient. It won't be those who fail to implement the things of the truth. Chapter 7 tells us who will be left standing. And so as we turn the page to Revelation 7, we are now introduced to 144,000 who have been sealed in their forehead and who in fact are protected by the God of heaven. Those are the ones that will stand. And that 144,000 is accompanied by the greatness of an innumerable host and multitude, that is in fact a breathtaking scene, for these are now in heaven. That's what John sees. They have come through the difficulties of life and all the sins that surround it. They now are in this place of protection and bliss and happiness. It might be interesting to understand too that in this chapter that protection is stated in two rather vibrant ways. <clears throat> in verse 14 of Revelation 7, these that we now see in protection are those who've washed their robes in white in the blood of the Lamb. In verse 17 of that same chapter, they now are in a place where all the needs of their life are met. For you see, they have access to a fountain with water that flows continually. In the days of the Roman Empire, if you and I had been a Christian and were being imprisoned for that reason, we might have had to go days or weeks with no water. Here, these blessed saints who have been so heavily persecuted are going to a place where their thirst will be quenched forevermore. That reminds us of what the Lord told that woman at the well in John 4 when he said, 
I'll give you water that will spring up into everlasting life, John 4, 14. As we appreciate then the blissful scene of Revelation 7, it turns somewhat negative again in Revelation 8. Here we notice that as we prepare for the seventh seal to be loosed, there's a space of a 30-minute span in heaven. It's, if you will, a crescendo is about to be reached. We notice that now, when the seventh seal is beginning to be loosed, there's the revelation of seven angels, who in fact have seven woes at their disposal. The first four are poured out in Revelation 8. In these woes, we see destruction left and right. The sea, the earth, the land, everything seems to in fact in part be destroyed. God's wrath will be poured on those who are unprotected, those that we saw protected in the previous chapter. As we understand that chapter, notice it ends by noting the three last woes and the worst ones are yet to come. We turn to Revelation 9. In Revelation 9, we notice who the author and the one behind all this evil is. In Revelation 9, verse 11, it's none other than the devil. As we see the description of this one who is called Apollyon or Abaddon in various languages from that very text, we read about this one who has in fact been the archenemy of God and also the archenemy of all those who are wishful servants of his. God, however, will deal with this one. In this book, before we're finished, we shall see the details of it. But for now, on earth, so many have been brought into following this evil that they stand opposed to God. At the end of chapter 9, we notice in verses 20 and 21, the fact that though they had been urged to repent, they had not done it. Isn't that tragic? They had been of a position, God had tried to gain their attention. Woes had been poured upon the earth in destructive means, and yet men had not learned the lesson and repented of their evil. They continued in their fornications. They continued in their idolatry and their sorcery. Those words themselves appear. On to chapter 10, John sees a strong angel. This strong angel has a book in his hand. That book also is a book of great interest. And in that book, we notice interestingly, verse number 7 of this chapter tells us that once the seventh seal is ultimately and finally revealed, that's the end of God's mystery. And notice, John is told, take the little book from the angel's hand and eat it up. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Here was John told, take this book and eat it up. We have not long to wonder what that might mean. The book was representative of the very will and power of God, the scriptures of God. Thoroughly eat it up. John was to thoroughly ingest, become thoroughly acquainted with the word of God. That's as needful for us today as it ever was for John. You and I need to eat this word up too. Not physically eat the literal pages of a Bible, but to take that and perhaps approach it like this. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 4 verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And didn't Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 15, in fact, these very words, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. Thus, when you and I become thorough students of the Bible, we too, like John, eat this word up and then we can teach it to others, share it with those about us. In Revelation 11, we encounter two witnesses. Though things looked awfully dark and bleak at times for God's people beneath the rulership of Rome, 
Can we not see God still had two faithful witnesses? What were they? One was the Scriptures. Man can't tamper or change it. The Scriptures remain tried and true, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. The second witness, the church, the glorious body of Christ. And they, those two witnesses stand strong and firm and true, so much so that in Revelation eleven fifteen we read this beautiful anthem. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The rulership and reign of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Might it be noted in regard then to chapter 11 as it closes, we are only, in fact, prepared then for the reality of chapters 12 through 20, which is the blockbuster section, really, of the Revelation. In chapter 12, we are introduced to our great enemy, He's in the form of a dragon. This dragon is so mighty and so powerful. In fact, he strives to eat up a little baby that a woman's about to give birth to. As we studied this series, we identified what all of that represented. But might we quickly say, as that chapter closes, we're told that this one, namely the devil, is out to get every faithful Christian because day by day he desires to bring us into his fold and into being a follower of him. Notice how the, that dragon, that devil is described in verse number 9 of this chapter. Notice that he is indeed that great enemy of God. As such, this great enemy is the deceiver of the whole world. He never will tell you and I the truth when it comes to things spiritual. It is his desire to lead us astray, to bring us into the, to the confines of his captivity. Isn't it an amazing thing in his description though, two verses later in verse 11 we encounter a surefire means of overcoming the devil. This ought to be etched firmly in the mind of every person on earth. How do you defeat the devil? This threefold attack is fail-proof. First, the word of their testimony, the word of God. Second, the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly, being willing to die for his cause. When you and I couple the truth of the Scriptures with the sacrifice of Christ and couple those things with the simple truth of faithfulness no matter what, the devil cannot defeat us. He cannot overwhelm us. We are an enemy that in fact through Christ is stronger than he can defeat. Revelation 13. In chapter 13 we encounter two rather ferocious beasts. The first is the sea beast. John looks and sees a beast rise out of the water. This beast is terrible and mighty. Later in the chapter, there's a second beast. This is a land beast. We came to realize what those two beasts were. One was the Roman Empire, the other the cult of emperor worship. As these beasts thus set forth the evil behind them of accomplishing things opposed to God. We see as chapter 13 closes what many realize to be a high aspect of this entire book, the mark of the beast, 666. Many wonder, what does that represent? Is it an evil and a bad thing for you and I to have a phone number with triple sixes in it? Is it not a wise thing to ride on an airplane if you're sitting in seat 666? That's not what that has reference to. The mark of the beast, as we start just a few verses earlier, has to do with Latinos, L-A-T-I-N-O-S, those with a desire to follow the things of Rome, anything opposed to God, and not render their lives in humble submission to the things God has revealed. 
notice that they prefer to buy and sell and get gain rather than to remain true to God. And any time today, you and I will forfeit truth to gain popularity, to gain wealth, to gain fame. We have done the same error that they committed in Revelation 13. As that chapter closes, we need another oasis. Things have looked bleak and dark with these beasts. Revelation 14 tells us again the high point of the 144,000 forever saved from all the difficulties of life because they have been faithful to the Lord. In Revelation 14 verse 4, we have a surefire path that leads to heaven. Notice, they follow the Lamb whithersoever He went. When you and I will follow Jesus wherever He, he leads us, we will end up surely where He now is. And Hebrews 6 tells us He's now in heaven. In Revelation 14, 13, we have one of the great anthems of this book, another of its beatitudes. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. It's still a truth that one can't die in the Lord unless you have lived in the Lord. May we each and every day examine carefully and ask, Am I prepared at every moment to die in the Lord? For only that kind of death is a blessing. Any other kind of death, to die outside the Lord, is a tragedy. To leave this life not ready to meet the Savior. In Revelation 15, we have another description of a beautiful scene. Those you see that we had earlier seen in such a difficult position are now standing on the sea, this sea of glass near to the throne of God. Oh, how wonderful it is to contemplate that they now sing a song with two stanzas, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Moses, the great deliverer from Egyptian captivity. The Lamb, the great deliverer from the throes of the devil. Oh, what a wonderful song it, it, it indeed was. However, it only prepares us for Revelation 16. For in Revelation 16, we encounter plagues. Seven angels come forth and they carry seven vials or seven bowls. And these bowls are about to be poured out. And might we never forget that the bowls contain the wrath of God. By now, we are prepared to know that God's faithful will not be the recipients of this wrath. God's wrath will be poured upon those who have been obstinate and rebellious and stubborn and refused to accept the saving message of the, of, the, of the Son of God. And as these bowls are poured out, we arrive at Revelation 16, 16, when right after the plagues, we see the battle of Armageddon. So much teaching today is false about that battle. That is not a battle yet to be fought at some grand day in the future when the Savior will ever turn from heaven and meet Satan on some little battlefield in the northern Jezreel area of, Jerusalem, or of, of the Sea of Galilee. Rather, that is a battle descriptive of good versus evil, God versus Satan, heaven versus hell. Notice that in that battle, of course, the forces of evil are defeated. God's forces will be victorious. And as that chapter closes and chapter 17 opens, we now encounter Babylon. Babylon reminds us of the Old Testament when God's people were captive to Babylon. Here it's re referring to Rome and the Roman Empire. And might we understand that Babylon is about to fall. In chapter 18, the fullness of the destruction of Babylon is given. And again, the teaching is the victory that is enjoyed by those who are not citizens of Babylon those who remain faithful unto God. So it is in chapter 17, might we notice especially verses 12 to 14. 
who is it that is the principal figure that brings about the defeat of Babylon? It's this one that rides a white horse and is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's none other than Jesus the Christ. That great one, and notice out of his mouth comes words, notice the word of God, which is critically a part of the defeat of Babylon. In chapter 18, we notice in verses 17 and following, the great riches of Rome were unable to save her. All these riches are come to naught. It still will be the case in the day of judgment for you and me. Money will not be a part per se of my salvation and yours. I can't buy my way to heaven and neither can you. It has to be by virtue of obey, obedience and the proper application of the things of truth to our life. That's what will avail in terms of God's mercy toward us. In Revelation 19, we are now almost to the end of the book. We come to the blessed scene of the marriage feast of the Lamb. When we remember that a marriage is a time of great celebration, a time of wonderful merriment and enjoyment, the Lamb is about to be married. The Lamb. We know that's Jesus. Who's His bride? Throughout the New Testament, it's described as the church. The faithful ones who almost are ready to be with Him uninterrupted for all eternity. And so in chapter 19, another beatitude, Blessed are they invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Friend, we've all been invited, but the question is, have you adorned yourself with the garments that will allow you to be admitted? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 20 about a man who had been given the opportunity to wear the proper garments, but he chose not to wear them. Christ said, cast that man out into ever everlasting darkness. You and I must be adorned with the right garments or heaven can never be ours. And so in chapter 19, as that chapter nears its close, we again see that dragon and the beasts. Their end is almost before us. But one more thing. In chapter 20, there's a thousand-year reign. And this thousand-year reign is such that, notice, Satan is bound for this thousand years. The key element of Revelation 20 is the binding of Satan, not the thousand-year reign. When Satan is bound, that means he's shackled and his power is restricted. And as we noted earlier, he cannot touch the faithful child of God when you and I will hold on to Christ. When you and I allow ourselves, though, to stray from the Savior, then he can get us. For he indeed is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And so in Revelation chapter 20, we notice that the dragon and the beast are thrown into a lake burning with fire and brimstone and tormented day and night for all eternity. There's the end of the dragon and the beasts. No more are they found in Revelation. In addition to the dragon and the two beasts, there's another group thrown into that lake of fire and brimstone. It's anybody whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Friend, that ought to raise the hairs on my back and my arms and yours. Anybody whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life is found right where the devil and the beasts are, in hell. Thankfully, as Revelation 20 closes, we see the great white throne seat of judgment, and we do see that there are those whose names are in that Lamb's book of life. And Revelation 21 will tell us where they end up. In Revelation chapter 21, we notice now a description of heaven. This beautiful place that is so majestic on the one hand for what is there. Christ is there. God is there. The redeemed of all the ages of all time are there. But it's also wonderful because what's not there, 
The dragon's not there. The beasts aren't there. Any type of sin and defilement is not there. Revelation 21, 27. As a direct result of that, there's also some other things that are not there. No pain. No crying. No death. No separation. No sadness of any kind. This is a place of pristine beauty. And as the closing scenario was given in Revelation 22, we now notice that there's no curse there. We now come full circle. Revelation 22 takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, there was a tree of life. Adam and Eve had, ac had access to it before they partook of the forbidden fruit. But following that, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden and no longer had they access to the tree of life. When we come to Revelation 22, we notice that all humanity again, upon being properly admitted to heaven, has access to that tree of life. It is that tree that bears fruit year-round. It's that tree that's spoken of in that chapter in language like this. It's so beautiful that the fruits of it are described in pristine ways. And verse number 14 tells us how to have access to it. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You see, any person who doesn't keep God's commandments is only fooling themselves. They will never have access to the tree of life. That tree is reserved for its fruits in those who will be admitted into heaven. And then the book of Revelation closes. Notice one last time, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. We aren't to tamper with God's word by adding to it or taking from it. What we are to do is simply obey it. Where do you stand today? What about the plagues revealed in this book? Will they be reserved for you? They will be, unless your name is in the book of life. What about the other things this book has shown us? First of all, do His commandments. And you will, in that way, be victorious over Satan, over self, over sin, and be ready to inherit an eternity in heaven. The gospel call of invitation is extended at this time. Might we quickly say that Jesus, the Son of God, is the key figure of the book in the sense He's the destroyer of Babylon, and He's the one whose blood allows you to be cleansed. If you have never been baptized today, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His beautiful name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done that, let today be the day, and the victory spoken of in Revelation will be yours. If you ever have been baptized, but you haven't been faithful, you've allowed yourself to be pulled aside from the truth of God, come back to that first love. Just like that church in both Laodicea and Ephesus, repent and do the first works. God will welcome you home. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways today to your obedience to the gospel, we'd be honored to be of assistance, even now while together we stand and while we sing.